listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. I was born in New York and raised in New Jersey. I was. I make no apology about that. In fact, I'm proud to be a New York driver. I'm proud to be a New York driver. I am. You know, I, in fact, I'm so proud of being a New York driver, I have become an expert in identifying other New York drivers. I could see them a mile away. You can recognize a New York driver. They're driving down the, the roads here in York, and as they're driving, they typically travel underneath the speed limit, below the speed limit. They don't travel faster, they travel slower than the speed limit. Now what's up with that, you say? And not only do they travel lower and slower than the speed limit, but they often make frequent, unexpected stops, pulling the car over to the side of the road. A New York driver is somebody who's interested not just in the destination, but in the journey. It's not just getting there, it's how you get there. And this is the way a New York driver gets there. You travel slower than the speed limit, you make frequent, unexpected stops, often pulling the car off to the side of the road. Now you're saying, what are you talking about? That doesn't sound like somebody who drives from New York City. I didn't say New York City. I said New York driver, as in me. I am new to York, Pennsylvania. I am a New York driver. My wife is a New York driver. And if you're new to York, if you're listening by podcast and you've never been to York, Pennsylvania, you're missing out. You need to come and visit. You need to understand that York is one of the most beautiful places you could live in all of the country. Cornfields, that's right. Cornfields, cattle, horses, those beautiful farmhouses. When I'm driving down the road, I, I go into New York driver mode. I have to pull the car over at times. I have to stop. I have to stop and pause. I have to take out my smartphone and take a picture of the farmhouse. I have to take a picture of the cows, the horses. Beautiful rolling scenery because it's all new. It's exciting for me. I haven't been here for very long, so I'm taking in all the sights, the sounds, the smells of York. <laughs> this time of the year, the smells of York. By podcast, you should be thanking God that you don't live here in York just for the smell issues. You know that if you're a New York driver, when you're driving down the road, and Janet and I have to look at each other and say, what is that smell? For all of you here already who've been here for a long time, you know what that smell is this time of the year in the springtime when the farmers are out there laying it out thick and heavy, smooth and creamy. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But you know... For those of, of you who have been in York for a long time, you travel down the same roads that I travel. You've probably been through those same roads, those same scenery, same bits of scenery that I'm stopping for, that I'm snapping photographs over, that I'm ooing and aahing over, that I'm slowing down and creating a traffic hazard behind me for. You just go and it's all about the destination. You're just traveling. You're just zipping to your destination. It's become the usual fanfare for you. You're used to it. Been there, done that. Ho-hum, same thing, different day. And I think we could learn something from being a New York driver 
and learn something about being new to York, Pennsylvania compared to those of us who are old to York. You've been there, done that, when it comes to understanding and appreciating the Word of God. Because the truth is that the longer we've been around, the more familiar we are with the Word of God. The danger is we can look at passages of Scripture and have a ho-hum, been there, done that, seen it before, read it billions of times, dozens of times before. I don't need to go there anymore. There's nothing there to understand any further. And you miss out on the beauty of God, the plan of God, and how you fit in with the beauty of what God is doing, how you fit in with the program of God and his agenda and how he's moving forward. And this is why I want us today to pull the car over to the side, pull over to the curb, open up the word of God to Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. If you have a smartphone or a tablet, follow along in the God Factor app using the Bible tab. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you were here with us last week or if you're following by podcast, wait a second. We covered the genealogy of Jesus Christ last week. We were in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through verse 38. And that's the problem that I want to address. You think we were there. We just started being there. Is this guy going to go through the genealogy of Jesus Christ again? You better believe I am. Because there's a whole lot more there that we didn't even have time to even begin to explore. The repercussions, the ramifications of the genealogy of Jesus Christ are so significant that it merits a second look. It merits a third look and a fourth look and a fifth look. People have asked, how in the world are you going to go through the Gospel of Luke over an entire year or more? Now you're getting a picture of it. Now you're understanding what's the rush when it comes to the Word of God. There's so much truth here that's practical, that's life-changing and transforming. Of course, we're going to look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. In our Father's word, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Last week, we talked about, in our last time together, that Jesus began his ministry at the time when most men began their public ministry. It's fitting with the culture, fitting with the practice of the day. And Luke is presenting again the idea of the virgin birth, that Jesus was not just a mere mortal, but he was unique. Virgin birth had never happened before, hasn't happened since. And what Luke is doing is he's presenting the ancestry of Jesus through the line of his mother, Mary. We traced it all the way back to Adam, the first man, the first one who was created in the image of God. Did you know that you're created in the image of God, the likeness of God? That's why holiness, right living is appropriate. It's important. It's significant. It's imperative. It's a sign of whether or not you're growing in Christ, whether your lifestyle is becoming more like the Christ whom you profess, if in fact you profess him at all. Holiness is important because you are indeed created in the image of God. Nothing else that God created was created in the image of God to the same degree to which you, yes, you, were created. The image, the likeness of God, the breath of life being breathed into that first man, Adam, we're all related. This is why Jesus is being traced in Luke's genealogy 
all the way back to Adam. Luke is showing us that Jesus was fully man. There had to be a one-for-one sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He's presenting Jesus as being fully human and through the virgin birth, presenting Jesus as being fully God because you can't clean a dirty table with a filthy rag. God needed somebody to take on your sin and mine who had no sin, that it would be a one-for-one sacrifice. And we covered that. We talked about that. And what I want to address here in particular, I want to pick it up in verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad. There's that name again. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And what we want to do is we want to pull the car over to the side, pause for a moment, and take note of one of these particular names in the background, the ancestry of Jesus, and the name is found in verse 34. We could spend a lot of time in multiple names here in the genealogy, and I encourage you to go into the Old Testament and to look at these particular names and look at how they were involved in history. Look at how they were real people presented in the Bible, and Luke is reminding us that these are not metaphorical, not allegorical, not mysterious, not symbolic representations of people. Adam is a real man, a real person who really lived in history, how it all began with Adam. And so are all the other people, real people that are involved in this genealogy. There's no indication whatsoever that the Bible is to be taken metaphorically, mystically. We don't need to complicate the Word of God. We don't need to make it more complicated than it is. If the literal sense makes sense, everything else is nonsense. And Luke is presenting real people in this real person, Jesus. He's presenting real people in his history. And one of the people in particular that we want to zero in on in verse 34 is this particular name, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham, there it is. That's the name. We want to zero in on the significance of Abraham being related to Jesus, of Jesus and his earthly, his human lineage being affiliated and related to Abraham. What is the significance of Abraham being mentioned in Jesus' ancestry? In Jesus' history, it's totally significant. And Luke wants us, by presenting a detailed account of the ancestry of Jesus, he wants us to pause. He wants us to say, this is that. There's a correlation between how Jesus came into the world, why Jesus came into the world, why Jesus came into the world, and this man, Abraham. And where do we go? To find out more, to dig down deep into the Word of God, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. Turn with me into our Father's Word as we explore the life and the implications of this man, Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We're actually going to read all the way through verse 7. Now the Lord has said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram Abraham went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took, his wife, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. You get any implication here at all of this being allegorical or metaphorical? Real people, real events, real history being recorded for us. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring... I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Central to the Abrahamic covenant is this idea of a land promise, an actual physical place that can be seen. You can walk upon it. Land, central to the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is central to the new covenant. It's central to our relationship to God being related to Abraham as we're going to see in a moment. It's significant. Notice verse 1, chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Abram is being taken out of his comfort zone. And what does Abram do? He leaves. He leaves. He demonstrates from a very early picture of his life, he demonstrates a willingness to drop everything to accommodate the movement of God in his life. He gets with the program. And he's a great example for you and for me today that we would be like Abram even when he didn't understand where God was going to take him. He didn't understand where this was going to go in the larger sense, the way that we understand it with hindsight even better than Abram understood. But his answer to God was yes before he even understood where he was going, what the significance and ramifications were of his going and his obedience to God. He said yes when it came to his son offering his son. Book of Hebrews says that Abraham believed God. He believed that he could raise someone from the dead. Now, what about you and me? See, oftentimes, because of the world we live in, we live in a world where under the direct crosshairs is this issue of the identity of God, the identity of Jesus Christ, whether or not God is trustworthy. We believe that God has given us his word, and we must also believe that God will keep the word he's given us. It's not just that God gave us his word, the Bible. It's also that God will keep his word. He is a covenant keeper. He is a God that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. And in your crosshairs, in your life, is your faith in God, you're walking with God because all hell is pressed in on you to try to get you to doubt the nature and character of God. It was the enemy's strategy in the Garden of Eden when he attacked Eve. And he said, did God really say? He questioned the promise of God. He got Eve to begin to use her own natural reasoning, her human reasoning, instead of believing what God had promised. And if you don't understand that you're going to be under the same attack Thousands of years later, you are misunderstanding the way the enemy operates. Central 
to your ability to live for God is your ability to think rightly about him. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you because everything else hinges. Everything else. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everything in your life, every single aspect of your life. Mike, are you being exaggerating right here? Are you taking it too far? Every aspect of your life, I still don't think you're hearing me. There is not one part of your life that can be safely separated from rightly thinking about God. The devil knows it. It's under direct attack here in the world. God's not trustworthy. So much time has passed. God won't fulfill what he promised. God changes his mind. No, God doesn't change his mind like people do. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And one of the promises central to which all of history is marching forward is the promise of literal land. Yes, I know land is a dear thing. But Janet and I were looking for land to build a house upon. I know that land is a significant thing. It, it brings with it this expectation, this promise, this anticipation of living a certain type of a life when you get into the land. And here in the Abrahamic covenant, God is promising him land. And I would say... As any historian knows, that all of the land that is promised to Abram and his descendants, what becomes the nation of Israel, has not yet been fulfilled, has not yet been realized. The nation of Israel today, not nearly as large as what God promised to Abram. It's just a shadow of what one day will become reality. Well, Mike, what are you saying? Do you really believe that there's going to be land in the Middle East where the Jewish people will be able to enjoy that land and the descendants of Abraham, not just the Jewish people, but God's people through Abraham, as we're going to see in a moment, will be able to enjoy that land? Yes, I do. And you should too. Look with me. Genesis chapter 13. Beginning in verse 13. Easy to remember, 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Again, literally talking about people who actually were engaged in practices that they shouldn't have been engaged in. That's why they were considered wicked. And I was just talking to somebody the other day who was trying to massage away alternative lifestyles to what the Bible presents as being natural and normal. I'm not being disrespectful to anyone who disagrees with me. Let me say that again. Because I'm not a homophobe, I am a cynophobe. And you should be too. There is not one sin that is worse than others. All sin is bad. That's why God sends people, people send themselves to an eternity separate from him because they choose to sin instead of being saved. Instead of choosing the Savior, they choose sin. That's the way it works. So the literal sense makes sense. Everything else is nonsense. 13.13, Genesis 13.13, there really was a place called Sodom. There really were people doing things with each other, men to each other, that are forbidden in Scripture, not part of the Levitical law. The Levitical law hadn't even been given here yet. It's not a matter of being a Jewish people thing. The law wasn't even introduced until 430 years after this. Wait a second. Maybe it's not a Levitical thing, this idea of 
heterosexual relationships being the only one that's approved of by God. This is 430 years before the law came. And homosexual relationships are not spoken of fondly. Am I being disrespectful to those who disagree with that view? No, I'm not. Am I speaking with conviction and passion? Yes, I am. In the same way that those who disagree would. Am I resorting to names? Am I being bigoted and saying that? No, I'm not. You won't be back, will you? But we have to get beyond my opinion, your opinion, to God's opinion. Look with me, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give you and to your offspring, your seed, your descendants forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. You know, one of the things we see Abram doing is he's continually, as God says, go, God says, move, he's moving. He's not getting into, do, into a debate with God. You have to come to the same conclusion in your life. Your answer to God is yes, regardless of where you know he's taking you. If you get into rationalizing and reasoning, you're going to fall into the trap that Eve had where she began to use her own mind to reason and to evaluate whether or not the word of God was credible. Don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You can have anything else. Don't eat that. She began to get into a debate with the serpent. She began to use her own reasoning, her own mindset, her own mindset. And if you do that in the course of this coming week and the weeks ahead, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. Because you have to settle the issue about the reliability of God. You have to settle the issue about the character and the nature of God. When God makes a promise, God always keeps the promise. And so your answer, your response to God is yes, regardless of whether or not you can see where he's taking you. Abraham is a great example. You don't need to know where obedience to God will take you a year from now. When I first gave my life to Christ before I did, one of the things that hung me up, one of the things that slowed me down on the way to giving my life to Christ was seeing other born-again Christians. That, at that particular time, the word born-again was used much more frequently from John chapter 3. You must be born again, and you still must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. But I saw the way other people were living for Christ, and it scared me. I didn't want to be like those people, and so I kept myself out of and away from intimacy with God and enjoyment of God and the freedom that comes with knowing all of my sins are forgiven because of what? Because of stereotypes. I was afraid that if I gave my life to God, that was going to take me someplace that I wouldn't agree with. And I bet you're tempted with the same thing too. You might not have given your life to Christ yet, and one of the reasons why you're not is because of you're afraid what you're going to look like. Listen. Listen very carefully. Nobody who's ever truly surrendered to God ever lived to regret it. 
Yet you will find in the course of your life a whole litany of people, a line too long to list of people who have not given their lives to Christ and they are miserable before it. Absolutely miserable. You might have given your life to Christ and then you've crawled off the altar. That's the problem with a living sacrifice. It has a tendency to crawl off the altar. You've given your life to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then God is asking you to go further, to go deeper in him, to go higher in him, to trust him, to walk by faith. You begin by faith and then you start to walk by faith thereafter and you've begun to shrink back. You know what? You know, you know that you know that you know that the rest of your life is absolutely miserable. You know what you need to do in terms of obedience and surrender. Why don't you do it? Give all of your life to Christ. It doesn't have to make sense to you. It does not have to make sense to you. If Abram sat down multiple times here and then with his son that he was going to offer as a sacrifice, multiple times through Genesis chapter 12, through Genesis chapter 17 alone, if Abraham sat there and looked at the big butt, we wouldn't be where we are today. And he wouldn't be in the ancestry of Jesus. More may be hinging on your surrender to God than you can even fathom. It does not mean, may, need to make sense to you in order for it to be the right thing to do because it's the one who's calling you will be faithful. We serve a God of the word and a God who keeps his word. He's trustworthy and he's trying to get us all to understand as his children. Could you please trust me? Could you please surrender to me? Trust me. And here in the Abrahamic covenant, you better believe there's a literal promise of land. Literal promise of land where the people are going to be brought into it one day. And if God promises something, it's significant because he will bring it to pass. Genesis chapter 15. Well, people have argued and debated about the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. It is an unconditional literal covenant. It is unconditional, meaning Abram had no effect on whether or not the fulfillment of the covenant would come to pass. Did you hear what I just said? It's not conditioned upon Abram's obedience. It is conditioned upon the follow-through, the word, the character, and the nature of God. We're going to see that in just a second. See, in the Old Testament, when you were going to make an agreement in Near Eastern culture, if you were going to make an agreement with somebody, you would cut a covenant you would get an animal. And what would happen is you would split the animal in two and you would lay one half of the animal over here, one half of the animal over on the other side, and then the parties involved in the covenant would walk between, as they were pronouncing the terms of the agreement, they would walk between the parted animal. And the idea was that may it be done to me, may it be done to us the same way it was done to the animals if we should ever break the covenant. That's called cutting a covenant. Typically speaking, in Near Eastern culture at this time, one animal would be used to cut the covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, we see that it's not one animal that's used. It's not two animals that are used. It's not three animals that are used. It's not four. It's five. Five animals are used, three of which are split in 
half. It shows, it shows us with absolute certainty that this is a serious covenant. We take note. We, we have the car pulled over to the side of the curb. We're paying attention. We're not nighttime Bible readers, right? Not members of the nighttime Bible reading society, reading the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, one eye closed. When you do that, you're missing passages of Scripture. You're missing importance, important things and important truths there. We're pulling the car over to the side of the road. We're marinating on this. We're, we're, room, we're, 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 we're camped out on this. And we understand that it's three animals that are cut in half. It means it's a significant covenant. It's unique. How unique? Look with me at Genesis chapter 15. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram's understanding of that doesn't even begin here, how great his reward's going to be. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, you promised me offspring. You promised me, you know, this idea of numerous offspring, more numerous than the dust on the ground. Well, how about starting with one? I don't even have an heir. And you know, ironically, the word Abram means exalted father. How'd you like to go around carrying that for your whole life, exalted father? You don't even have a kid. And then when his name is changed from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations, the significance is just mind-blowing. So Abram is engaging in this friendly dialogue with God. He's wondering about the biology of it. He's wondering, wondering about how this is going to be possible. And he asks God, verse 3, And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, how is that possible? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Famous passage of scripture. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abraham, Abram at this point said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Lord says, okay, I'll show you. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half. Here's the covenant being prepared. They're going to cut this covenant. Cut them in half and laid each half over against each, the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Interesting, even here, that what's implied is that Abram is obeying the Lord. He's a great example of God. You say it, I'm following. Great example for us today. God, it doesn't make sense, but because you say it, because of your character, not my ability in my mind to rationalize whether or not it makes sense. See, that's the difference between faith and rationalism. United States, we value rationalism. It doesn't make sense. We become skeptics. No, we have a faith, and it is a reasons, reasonable faith because it's based on the character and nature of a God who keeps his word. It's reasoned, reasonable faith. There's a sense 
a nod here, that time has passed because the, the animals have been cut in half and the birds now have been circling. Now they've come down, they're coming down on the carcasses and Abram has to drive them away and that's not it. It seems like more time passes because the sun starts to go down. Here's this man of faith, this man of obedience who's trusting God and more time is passing. It's not like a microwave. It's not like God promises you something and then all of a sudden it's fulfilled. If you're used to living your life that way, it's because you've been conformed to the pattern of this world where instant gratification is the modus operandi. It's not the way it works. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, what would you do if you were Abram? You'd probably do this. A deep sleep fell on Abram. The guy's tired. It's been a long day. He's been holding on to the promise of God and the sun is going down. The covenant has not been cut. A deep sleep fell on Abram. What fell on Abram? A deep sleep. Significant. The covenant's about to be cut and you're sleeping? You're supposed to participate with God in this very most somber, serious covenant which has ramifications well beyond your lifetime and you're going to snooze, Abram? The man's exhausted. And I believe that God allowed Abram to get to that point where Abram was exhausted so that we could now look back in hindsight and realize the covenant and the promises of the covenant are not conditioned upon Abram's agreement or disagreement, his involvement or his disassociation. It's not dependent upon Abram's obedience. It's dependent upon the word and the promise of God, period. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring, your ancestors, your descendants will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, speaking of the imprisonment by the Egyptians. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Look at this, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, not the Parasites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God is saying, I'm swearing by my name, by who I am, with three sacrifices cut in half. I'm going to give you the land, and I'm going to give you the offspring, the descendants. The Abrahamic covenant has land, a literal place that has borders, that has an expanse that the nation of Israel has not yet come into. It's much more expansive than Israel has ever experienced. And that means that if God promised it, and it's based on the character of God, and Abram was sleeping when the covenant was cut, it means that what God promised in the beginning, he will bring to completion. And the same is true 
in your life in regard to all the promises of God. Whatever God has promised you based on his word, the objective truth of God based on his word, whatever God has promised you, you can have certainty and surety that God will bring the things that are not yet into your life to fulfillment because he is a God who keeps his word. Further seen by the descendants. Did you catch that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, this is seen in Genesis 13, 15, for the, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. There's this promise of offspring. There's this promise of a nation. And when we go to Galatians chapter 3, with great hindsight and great insight because of the word of God, we begin to get an understanding that there were literal, physical descendants of Abram that would come through his son. Blood-born descendants, and then there would be those who have faith, believing in the Messiah, believing in the Savior, who are literal, blood-born descendants of Abraham, and then there are spiritual, non blood-related descendants of Abraham. How do I know that? Because the book of Galatians, so you can't make this stuff up. The book of Galatians explains this. The Bible is such a book that man couldn't write if he would, wouldn't write if he could. You wouldn't have dreamt this up. You wouldn't have thought about it this way, but this is the providence of God, that if you are part of Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you are one of those stars in the sky that God was talking about when he spoke to Abraham. You're one of those specks of dust on the ground that God was talking about when he was talking to Abram. How do I know that? Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Faith. Those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. And you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 29 of chapter 3, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you understand that you are evidence, if you've given your life to Christ, that God keeps his promises, so shall your offspring be, he told to Abraham thousands of years ago, and you are of the offspring of Abraham if you've given your life to Christ. There's no sense in, in which he's being allegorical or metaphorical here. He's being literal. The literal sense makes sense. It was promised hundreds, now thousands of years ago, that Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the, the dust on the ground, and God has kept his promise. If you've given your life to Christ, you're part of the family of Abraham, part of the faith. There's a literal land promise that is yet to be fulfilled in the Abrahamic covenant. There's a literal promise of descendants that is in the process of being fulfilled right now, and you are part of that reality being materialized. 
Thirdly, in Genesis, look at Genesis chapter, th- chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, the book of Galatians. What is being promised to Abraham is that all of the world will be blessed because of a descendant coming from the line of Abraham. This is why it gets significant that Luke is tracing in his genealogy the ancestry of Jesus. This is why Abraham is included because it was promised way back in Genesis 12. We just saw it for ourselves that there would be offspring coming from the line of Abraham, that there would be literally a kingdom and and a nation, people, people, following God, tracking with God. Now, in Abraham's day, he didn't understand the fullness of that. We look back with hindsight, it's all those who have faith in Christ. Everybody who has faith in Christ is part of that great nation, the nation of believers. But it is promised in the book of Genesis. It's even promises, promised in Genesis chapter 3. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3. This idea of God bringing somebody into the world. Genesis chapter 3, the gospel is there from the very beginning. Verse 14 and 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of the Messiah that would come into the world. The idea is presented that through Abraham, that's the line through which the Messiah would come. That's why Luke presents Abraham in the genealogy, the ancestry of Jesus. That's why when we get to Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14, it makes it crystal clear for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What's the blessing of Abraham? Genesis 12, 3, I'll bless those who bless you, and on him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The whole world is blessed because of Jesus Christ, a literal person, coming into the world, born of a virgin, from the line of Abraham, in fulfillment of what God promised now thousands of years ago. We are reminded of the truth that God keeps his word. Look also in Galatians chapter 3, Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God. How? Through faith, not birth. And so what Luke is doing in the genealogy, the ancestry of Jesus, is he's reminding us that Jesus comes from the line of Abram. That years ago, centuries earlier, when the time this was written, centuries centuries earlier, God had made a promise that the whole world would be blessed through the offspring, a particular seed, a particular seed. If you look at Galatians chapter 3. Verse 16, it says that, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. 
See, Abram didn't fully understand it in his day. We understand it with great hindsight now that if you belong to Christ, if you're Christ's, if you belong to Christ, you're Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There are promises that God has made about eternal life to those who have believed in him, those who've given their lives to Jesus. There are promises that God has given to those who know him as their Lord and Savior, who've received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that never will he leave you, never will he forsake you. And there are times in the turbulence of life where we begin to doubt the promises of God. How is God going to help me carry me through? Will God stay with me or will he forsake me? Listen, the covenant made to Abraham was done when he was sleeping. It's the same way it happens with you and with me. We didn't ask for Jesus to come in the world when he did. We didn't know that we needed to have somebody come and die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That God didn't ask us for our opinion or wait for our approval. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not dependent upon our readiness or our preparedness or our changing our life before God moves. God has made the first move in your life and in mine. And our job is to simply respond to him to show up and say, yes, what God has promised, he will fulfill. We don't just follow the word of God. We follow the God of his word. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.